All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 John. 2 John. There's a fair amount of conversation about who the books of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John are directed to. One of, one of the things that I, I do, I gave you, uh, I, I described it as an inside baseball a couple of Sunday mornings ago, just kind of how the process works for me in getting ready. I'll give you a little more this evening. One of the things I always like to do right before I preach a passage is to just pick up a work, a commentary, or uh, maybe a book in a series or a monograph on the book itself and just read through. It always just helps to sort of jog my memory. That's my Saturday night thing. That's my late Wednesday thing before coming out. It, it, it helps to call to memory the things that I've studied about the passage or key issues. The problem with that is, from time to time, you pick up one that doesn't exactly cohere with your impressions of the passage, and then you're left with this conflict. So my take on 2 John is that John, 2 John is written specifically to a hostess. Somebody's on the roof. So, to a hostess of the house church that John is addressing. So you have 1 John written to the churches likely of Ephesus, where John served as elder as apostle, where John was located after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But within that area was a church hosted by the lady addressed in 2 John, noted here only as the elect lady and her children. My take has been that that represented a specific person, that John had a specific lady in mind. And that's sort of customary in the New Testament. It was often uh, that the Apostle Paul would mention the women who served as hostess to the gathering church. No church buildings, no nothing like we understand them now. In the developmental stages of the church, the church met house to house. They were meeting in homes around the region of Ephesus. And my impressions of Second John were that John was writing to a specific house church being hosted by a specific recipient of this letter. Within the last hour or so, I picked up a volume on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and was reading specific to 2nd John, a very compelling argument that John uses this, this somewhat anonymous terminology so that the letter itself is applicable not only to one house church in Ephesus, but to many house churches in Ephesus. Thankfully, this doesn't have a tremendous amount of bearing on how we make application of the letter itself. But the introduction itself is framed as to suggest that this is a single hostess and a single house church which is in view. In either case, John is writing to one or more churches in the region of Ephesus in order to warn them against the prevalence of deception, to caution them against certain heresies, which seem to have been a big deal in gaining ground in the region of Ephesus. In all likelihood, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John were written simultaneously and delivered to those churches. 1st John as a sermon, as a, an exhortation that was to be issued verbally to the church, maybe even 2nd John as a more brief exhortation for the church, and then 3rd John specific to a man identified as Gaius, which we'll look at in next week's message. In any event, the letter itself warns against certain heresies. It warns uh, against how to about how to manage Christian hospitality, 
so that you are receiving well those who are passing by, but at the same time, you're not enabling ministry that's counterproductive to the advancement of the gospel. I think you'll see what I mean along the way. 2 John, verse number 1. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, I love all of you in the truth, and not only I, but also all who've come to know the truth because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth in keeping with the command we receive from the Father. So now I urge you, dear lady, not as if I were writing to you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command, as you've heard it from the beginning, you must walk in love. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so you don't lose what we've worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who doesn't remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and don't say welcome to him, for the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works." Though I have many things to write to you, I don't want to do so with paper and ink. Instead, I hope to be with you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister send you greetings. So John the elder, John the beloved disciple, John the apostle, now based around the city of Ephesus, and there's a, a fair amount of early church tradition and history that speaks to John's presence in and around the city of Ephesus. Now a long-established elder, the figurehead of the church in many ways in the region of, of Ephesus, that same area John writes to in the book of Revelation, the churches of Asia Minor addressed there, now writes to the church to warn them against certain heresies, but in addition to that, to re-emphasize the high call of Jesus on our life to love one another. In fact, if we, if we put the book itself into gospel terms, we see much of how the gospel functions in our life. We see an example in verses 1 through 3 of how the gospel binds us together. One of, one of the interesting features of 2 John is how it exhibits the great love that existed between John and the people under his care. There's an incredibly close kinship that exists between John and the churches of Asia Minor, but especially here, the churches of Ephesus. The language of fatherhood and brotherhood and family are used again and again and again, and in much the way we've observed in the book of First Peter. But here, the fact that John can refer to himself simply as the elder, and everyone knows who the elder is, is likely expressive of a really close connection, a bond that exists with, among them. John closes the book in verse 12, noting, I, I have a lot to say. I have much to say to you. I can't wait to see you in some respects, but I wish not to communicate such things in ink and paper, but to see you once again face to face. 
This is more than kind of a detached existence as an elder, an apostle, or a pastor among those churches, but one who is well known face-to-face with those people. The same is true in 3 John, which we'll look at closer next week. He says the same in the conclusion there in verse 13. I've many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face-to-face. Peace be with you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. Not only do those verses indicate a close kinship between John and the church of of Ephesus, the church in Gaius' house, it's also indicative of a close connection that exists between the churches in Eph- the Christians in the church in Ephesus and Christians elsewhere. There seems to me, there seems to me in the New Testament, a closer sense of togetherness in the church than what often exists in our day. And it's not just a closeness within a single congregation, but a closeness across congregations. The unfortunate reality of much of Christianity in America is that people make determinations about where they go to church on the basis of who they're angry at somewhere else or where they used to be and what happened in some former experience, which makes the likelihood of real genuine fellowship across the boundaries of local church membership a a low likelihood. But there ought to be a kinship, a sense in which we're on the same team, pulling in the same directions, earnest about the same things. Now the reality is that that whole experience is complicated by the fact that not every church that marches under the banner of the gospel is truly a gospel advancing church. Churches get out of whack. Priorities need adjusting. Churches can even defect. Once healthy churches can be quite sickly at some point along the way in need of a revival or an awakening. But the ideal situation is that we're able to look across the landscape of the broader church and to identify with the convictions and the passions of those who, although they don't attend the same local assembly, share our love for Jesus Christ. And to see them in no way as competitors or a counter to what we do or who we are, but as brothers and sisters who have locked their arms with us in seeking the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. This is the very thing you hear me poking at and insisting we oppose Sunday morning after Sunday morning. If if, if I could just be really frank, we're living in a day and an age when our children, and us for that matter, are constantly being bombarded with the LGBTQ agenda. That's an everyday part. Every song that they hear, every show that they watch, whether it comes from Disney down in Orlando or a major motion picture programming group in Hollywood, everything they see to the littlest of them is in some ways touched by a secular agenda. They're under the constant barrage, the constant efforts of the world around them to indoctrinate them in an anti-Christian lifestyle with anti-Christian ideals and anti-Christian perspectives. We're living in a day and an age when it's become a controversial thing to say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Now, those are pet issues, and they're real easy to get on a soapbox about. But all I'm trying to say to you is we have too big of issues to deal with to be constantly lobbing bullets and bombs at one another within the body of Christ, even within the broader body of Christ. When you, when you put even what we might regard as unhealthy churches in that context, 
doesn't it help to lend some perspective? Aren't you glad that though there may be subtle differences, secondary and tertiary issues about which we may have some manner of disagreement, aren't you glad that at its core, there are countless churches in our community and abroad who share with us a love for Jesus Christ and a desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ greatly advanced. There is far too much out there in the way of of spiritual warfare and a battle to be fought and won for the kingdom of Jesus for us to be turning our weapons of warfare against one another. There's a kinship that exists. And I'll tell you, I'm convinced it exists largely in a way in the New Testament period that it does not exist in the Western church because Christians are being actively hunted and persecuted for their faith. That has the effect of putting things in perspective, of changing our outlook. When people are lobbing literal bullets and bombs, it has a way way of changing the way we can tend to regard things. And I don't know that if anything will truly change our outlook, our ability to be on the same page as the broader body of Christ outside of persecution, it may prove that that's one of the benefits that persecution ultimately serves the Western church when that day does ultimately, ultimately come. And that day, in my estimation, will ultimately come. And it may come much faster than what we'd like to imagine. They're pressed to the margins of society. And so all they're left to do is to bind themselves together in the love of Jesus Christ by the power of the gospel and seek to see his kingdom advanced. It won't be long, and we might likely find ourselves under similar circumstances. So you see in verses 1 through 3 that the gospel binds us together. That's not the function of the passage. That's not John's agenda. But it's certainly an observation concerning the gospel that we might make there. In verses 4 through 6, we see the way the gospel motivates us. If you're looking for a gospel outline, this is it. The gospel binds us together, but furthermore, the gospel motivates us. It is the power of the gospel that enables us to love. It is the power of the gospel that that enables obedience in us. It is the power of the gospel that compels the church to seek the advancement of the kingdom. It is the power of the gospel that is the effective force in the advancement of the kingdom. It is the power of the gospel. Look at verse 4. John says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth in keeping with a command we've received from the Father. So now I urge you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commands. This is the command as you've heard it from the beginning. You must walk in love. John starts by celebrating the faithfulness of this elect lady's children, whether it be an individual lady, as we mentioned as a possibility, or if the elect lady is a way of making broader reference to a local church. In any case, their children are walking in the truth. They're experiencing as a body a second generation of believers, a second generation of people who are now entrusting themselves to Jesus and walking in the truth of the gospel. Think for just a moment about how Christendom might look different if over the past few generations the church had been more effective in rearing their children in the training and admonition of the Lord 
If only our children and grandchildren were to come to faith, think of the exponential growth that would have unfolded in the body of Christ just in recent generations. There, there's a Whether John is referring to a specific woman and her children or a broader reference to the children given to the care of the local church, we have an incredible responsibility to see that those little ones entrusted to our care come to know Jesus and to love him and to treasure him and to cherish him with all of their heart. John says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. I, I know that that doesn't mean literal children, but that's one of the first verses that I ever committed to memory. It, it's a, it's a memorable, memorable verse anyway, but I can remember even before we had kids, just thinking of, of how important it was. And I saw this modeled well in my pastor. My pastor did a remarkable job at rearing his children. They all loved Jesus, and now he has grandchildren that are learning to love Jesus. He was just a great example for us in this area. But determining, us determining as a couple to, to reshape our family tree, and to insist that regardless of the environments from which we come, we would do everything within our power to ensure that the children that God would give us would know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he loves them, and that they would observe in us his commandments in the scripture. I was glad, John says, to find some of your children walking in the truth in keeping with the command we've received from the Father. So now I urge you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we had from the beginning that we love one another. John celebrates the faithfulness of some of their children, and then he issues or reissues the age-old command, love one another. John is well ahead of his time in verse 6. Not only does he tell them that they should love one another, he defines the language of love for them. This is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command as you've heard it from the beginning. You must walk in love. One, one of the tricks of Satan, uh, one of the great deceptions of the devil is to distort and twist the meaning of the simplest of terms, and love is among them. Love has come in our culture to mean something that is wildly different than what is expressed in the scripture. Love is not exclusively emotional. Love is not exclusively affectionate. Love has a commitment component. An undying, unending, unyielding commitment component that cannot be removed from the equation without radically redefining the nature of love, what God intends for us. Love is we're commanded in the scripture. When John says love one another, he doesn't mean love one another when people are behaving lovingly. To love in the biblical sense is to love people when people are behaving in a rather unloving manner. When you commit to love your husband, or you commit to love your wife, or you commit to love the brotherhood, or you commit to love your neighbor, there is no exception or qualification there for, for unlovable people. Those are precisely the people that Jesus calls us to love consistently, to, to, to continue on with spirited love for those, even when they present themselves as the most unlovable. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus could not be clear about this. What credit is it to you if you love your friends and family? Everybody does that, Jesus says. Even the Pharisees love their friends and family. But what you've been called to do in the power of the gospel is to love the unlovable, to love your enemies, to love those for whom no one else has affection. You are to love them and love them well. 
Here within the framework of the church, John says, love one another. And every indication is in reading 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, these were churches who did a good job at loving other people. In fact, it seems to me that they do such a good job at loving other people that it kind of gets them in trouble at a certain point along the way. You've known people who just love without any discretion whatsoever. My grandmother, who you hear me talk about so often, was one of those people. She just could see the best in anyone and had no capacity for seeing the worst. She could not see trouble when it was coming. My wife tends to be that way, except maybe when it comes to me. Um, she, she, she just loves people and without exception and can open herself to some difficulties by virtue of showing that kind of love if she's not careful. She just needs a little extra discernment. And I'm happy often to be able to provide that for her. But the church, because of this, we'll see this in just a moment, they seem to be a very loving church. And so what John seems, in my estimation, to be doing is to affirm them in the love that they're showing for one another. This is not a rebuke. This is not a, you need to love people because you're not loving people. This is a, you're loving people, love people all the more, persist in love for one another. This is the age-old command. John celebrates the faithfulness of their children. He reissues the command to love one another, defines love as he has, uh, in, lo as he has in mind here in our passage. Loving one another is to walk according to his command, and this is the command you've heard from the beginning. You must walk in love. Jesus said, John learned this from Jesus, if you love me, obey my commandments. Our love for Jesus compels us to honor his commandments in our life. That's what love looks like. Love looks like a commitment to the commandments of Jesus consistently followed after in our life. In verse 7 of our passage, the topic changes, and John shifts to a warning against deception. In fact, I would say that, that in verses 7 and 8, John is describing the way the gospel keeps us. If we're deceivers have gone out into the world, they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so you don't lose what we've worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Notice that John does not warn the church against the antichrist. John warns the church against the many antichrists who have already gone out into the world. Anytime you raise the topic of Antichrist, it, it raises tons and tons of questions. And I would suggest to you that 99% of what pop culture has to say about the Antichrist is unrelated to anything that you'll find in the Bible. 99% of what pop culture and your social media feed has to say about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast is unrelated to the teaching of the Bible. Almost invariably, when the conversation of the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast stuff comes up, people read those passages and they, they're, they can, be, can be convinced that this is something that will come upon us unawares. Like we're going to get tricked into the Mark of the Beast and we're going to get tricked into condemnation and damnation as a result of, of taking the Mark of the Beast. The most recent iteration of this fear was with the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Vaccine will have Mark of the Beast. Before that, it was microchips and before that it was apple iphones although we moved on quite quickly from that one before that it was credit cards and before that it was social security numbers every few years there's a new iteration of this idea that we're going to accidentally take some mark 
or accidentally follow after the Antichrist. What I'll say to you just briefly, since this subject is here before us, is that no one is going to be tricked into siding with Satan or the Antichrist. The idea of a mark being taken on one's hand or their forehead is an apocalyptic or symbolic way of saying we have identified with a particular person or party. As followers of Christ, we might say that we have taken the mark of Jesus on our hand and our forehead, not that we have literally written on our bodies or taken a literal mark, but that we have, by virtue of our actions and by virtue of our faith commitment, identified ourselves with Jesus. In the same way, those who reject out of hand the message of the gospel have identified with Satan by virtue of their actions and their theological or atheological convictions. There are no tricks here. But John is more concerned here, not with the Antichrist, capital A, but with the many Antichrists who have gone out into the world. And what I would say to you as your pastor tonight is that you ought to be far more concerned at the present hour with the work of the many antichrists who have gone out into the world than the big A antichrist that we seem to be so fascinated with in many of our Bible study circles. There are many deceivers who have gone out into the world, and John is encouraging the church to be discerning with regard to so-called Christian ministers so that they're able to identify the true from the false. John says in verse 7, they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now he's here identifying a prevalent heresy in Asia Minor in the late 1st century and 2nd century known technically as docetism. Docetism comes from a Greek word that means it seems or it looks like. And what they would say about Jesus is that he looked like he was in the flesh, but what you were really witnessing was a spirit form walking among us as though he were in the flesh. Now, they're influenced by the culture because the culture in Asia Minor and in much of the Roman Empire wanted to make a hard separation between the spiritual man and the physical man. Unless you mock that much, I would admonish you that there's a lot of that kind of perception in Baptist circles. As so much as we have committed ourselves to Jesus spiritually, it's irrelevant what we do with our physical body. But the Bible paints a picture of an inseparable connection that exists between the body, soul, and spirit of a human. We are body, soul, and spirit by the creation of our God, created in the image of our Lord, body, soul, and spirit. And what you believe spiritually is bearing itself out practically or physically in the things you do or do not do with the physical body that God has given you. Now, in the first century, they wanted to make a hard separation between the physical and the spiritual. Now, what this allowed them to do was virtually anything that they wanted to do with regards to sexual immorality with never a thought of any guilt or conviction. You would think there'd be a hard break from that outlook or that philosophy for those who were coming to faith in Jesus. But as it inevitably does, the culture was influencing their perceptions of the message of the gospel. 
so that there were some who invented this misrepresentation of the gospel in order to justify their worldly convictions. Jesus was just a spirit being because in their framework, if he had been a physical man, that would have in their mind eliminated the possibility that he could have been a perfectly righteous man. What we know by the message of the gospel is that not only did Jesus come in the flesh physically, literally, but that Jesus was, in addition to that, a perfectly righteous man. I was having a conversation with some young men in our church a while back, a conversation about a conversation, in fact, where they were discussing amongst themselves, this is always encouraging to hear from your students, they were discussing amongst themselves the eternal humanity of Jesus. It isn't just that Jesus clothed himself in flesh and lived in the flesh for those 33 years of his earthly ministry. It is that Jesus was physically raised from the dead on the third day, flesh and blood and bones, and is seated at the right hand of God today in perfect righteousness in the flesh, divine blood flowing in his veins, bearing the scars of the cross in his hands and his feet. Jesus was and is and ever will be flesh and blood like unto us as our great high priest who forever intercedes for us. John says, if anyone comes to you and says Jesus did not come in the flesh, then you'll know, you'll know that this person is a heretic and you won't want to lend your support. In verse number nine, and we have to move kind of quickly here. I thought I had a little more time than what I did. John says, anyone who doesn't remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him into your home and don't say welcome to him. For the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. I can remember personally taking an, uh, an overly literal understanding of this passage early on in my walk with Jesus, which was kind of my way, a lot more zeal than wisdom in the early days. This passage is not a prohibition against inviting in the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon missionary and sharing with them the message of the gospel. This passage is a prohibition against doing anything that might enable the ministry of the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon missionary who stops by your house. In a first century setting, especially in Asia Minor, there were no hotels, no motels, no, no inns that were acceptable environments for Christians. Not to mention the fact that because most Christians lived on the margins of society, they would not have the financial capacity to rent in those places in the first place. So Christian travelers and Christian missionaries were entirely reliant upon the hospitality of those who lived within the cities they traveled to or traveled through. So it was a customary thing in the first century church that if a Christian were passing by, you would open your home to them, you would provide them with a meal, you would provide them with a safe place to sleep, to rest for the night, you might even host them for a number of days, and then you would send them on their journey. Well, this is a good thing, a praiseworthy thing. But if you got the kind of people who love well and love big and love lavishly, it's the kind of thing that can really be taken advantage of. And what John is warning them against here is housing so-called Christian ministries who preach a gospel that is foreign to the teaching of Jesus. 
He's cautioning them against doing anything that would enable them in their ministries. I would encourage you that just as God has called you to give, that just as God has called you to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to your care, to your management, that you need to make sure not only that you're giving charitably, but that you're giving charitably to organizations, institutions, to churches, to missions, to ministries, to bodies who are themselves reflective of kingdom values, who are stewarding well what you have entrusted to their care. Now, I, I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the things that we support and get behind here as a body. I think you ought to be as well, but you ought to know what they are. You ought to be familiar with them. And there's some effort on our part to make sure that we keep you abreast of where we're connected in terms of missions and ministries. It's one of the reasons we stay as closely as we stay to the International Mission Board, as closely as we stay to the North American Mission Board. You, you recognize those names. You know the ministry that's being carried out by those entities of our uh, convention, a convention of like-minded churches. We have an incredible responsibility. There'll be, there'll be a time, inevitably, when someone comes and says, hey, we want to support this ministry, we want to do this work. And that's just not a decision that can be made in a moment, but one that requires a tremendous amount of investigation and looking into an insight. For us as pastors, most of the time, it's not about deciding between a good ministry and a bad ministry. It's about making a distinction between those great opportunities, and they are countless. And the best opportunity that's truly reflective of the kingdom values that we want to encourage within our body. You have that responsibility within the context of the church, and you have that responsibility in your personal lives as well to see that any charitable organization, whether it be a church, a ministry, or otherwise, is advancing the kingdom cause and not working in a way that's at odds with the message of the gospel. That's the very thing that John is describing here in our passage. Don't accept anti-Christian teaching and be careful not to provide support to such a ministry. You need to be really careful and discerning within your personal lives that you're taking up devotional material and you're tuning in to preaching ministries that are truly reflective of the teaching, the principles of the Scripture. And I, and I just, and listen, I, I, can, I can cite you examples of the very heresy that is mentioned by John in our passage on TBN and CBN that will air this very evening. It's, it's not just that there are some that are void of any doctrinal, doctrinal commitment. It is that they, there exist out there preaching and teaching ministries at direct odds with the message of the gospel. Not these obscure secondary issues, but the kind of things that I can cite book, chapter, and verse as, as in opposition to the message of the gospel, you need to be tremendously careful in your personal life about discerning between the true and the false. You need to be really, really careful. I would, I would like that at some point in the future we could spend some considerable time at discerning between the true and the false. That's a theme from 1 John we didn't really get to address in 1 John chapter 5. But it would behoove you as Christians to be extremely sensitive to the work of the Spirit when discerning the true or false nature of ministries and listen to the still small voice of the Spirit. I'll tell you a brief little story and we'll dismiss. I'm convinced that for a true believer, there's a tremendous power in the Holy Spirit's abiding presence in us 
to discern the true from the false. I had a phone call conversation relatively early this morning from a guy who's, who's given consideration of being joined to the fellowship of a church. And a part of that membership process required of him affirming certain convictions that he was uncertain of. He's a relatively new believer. We went to high school together and uh, kind of became pals. I kind of tormented him a little bit in high school, but we kind of got to be buddies after I came to know Jesus. And he's come to know Jesus. And, and but he just said, wait, I, you know, I, I, if this is right, I want to affirm this, but something just doesn't feel right. And he kept discrediting his knowledge of the Bible. He said, I don't want to be against anything the Bible is for. I don't want to be for anything the Bible is against. I'm just not confident in what I know of the Bible. And I finally just had to say, Chris, I, I think you're, you're underestimating your level of understanding. The still small voice of the Spirit is directing in this process, and something is amiss. You need to find yourself somewhere else to enjoy Christian fellowship because this is not the place for you. When, when, when there's the correction, the nudge of the Spirit, heed that with regards to teaching ministry. And it's incredible. When the abiding presence of Jesus is within us, how often, even in the absence of depth of knowledge, in, in a state that we might describe ourselves as a state of ignorance, the all-knowing Spirit of God guides us in discerning the truth. Listen and heed the warning. Let's go to Christ in prayer. Father, Thank you for your word and for its truth and for the opportunity to spend these moments together considering your call on our life, that we would love one another, that we would discern the true from the false, that we would abide in the gospel. Help us to do what your word has required of us and may Christ receive all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.